Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again today, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Um, I, I, I think we're going to be sharing some things that's going to be a real blessing to you. We began uh, probably about eight weeks ago teaching a series on the seven I am's of Jesus in the book of John. Uh, he says several times in the book of John, I am. And the thought that really caught my attention is that when he said I am, it was always in contrast to you thought that was, but I am. In other words, we had some places where we looked at uh, some scripture where he, he talks about I am the light of the world, and he talks about uh, the law of Moses and how you thought that was the light, but that's not the light. I am the light of the world. And uh, we talk about, uh, I mean, there's several places here where he, he talks about, uh, for instance, I am the true vine. Uh, in other words, you could go back to Isaiah, and we'll get to that as we get uh, closer to that one, where he says, I am the true vine. Uh, it goes back to the book of Isaiah where Israel thought they were the choice vine or the true vine, but Jesus says, but I am the true vine. That's not the vine. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about I am the door today. Uh, there's places where he says, I am the good shepherd, and he it begins to indict some of the old corrupt shepherds of the old covenant where he says, your shepherds that have uh, literally taken advantage of the flock of God, but that's not the shepherd. I'm the true shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So we're going to make the contrast between those, uh, and we're going to continue this series probably over the next several weeks. Now today and probably over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about I am the door. Let me say quickly, though, for reference point that uh, you say, well, I missed the first eight weeks. I really would really like to hear what you said about I am the true bread, uh, because I talked about your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead, but I am the true bread. So that wasn't the bread. Jesus said he was the bread. And then uh, last several weeks, we talked about I am the light of the world, and how that, that light shined in darkness and was inclusive of the Gentiles. The law of Moses was not inclusive to the Gentiles. But in uh, uh, the Gospels, he begins to open by saying, uh, in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. And it talks about how he was including the Gentiles in the covenants of promise because he was the true light. Uh, the old covenant was exclusive. Uh, the new covenant is inclusive of both Jew and Gentile. Uh, let me say this again before we get too far into it, that if you've missed any of these, you'd like to go back and watch them. Uh, they are archived for you on YouTube, and you can watch them at any time at your leisure. Uh, there's also a link to the uh, iTunes podcast where you can go back to iTunes and listen to the audio portions of this, or there's also an RSS feed for Android. The easiest way to do any of that is to simply go to our website and you will see the address come up on the screen 
And in the upper right-hand corner, there are icons for YouTube, iTunes, and a little robot-looking thing for the RSS feed. You can go there at your leisure, watch them on demand. There are no charge for that. We appreciate, of course, uh, anytime you're being blessed, you're sowing back into the ministry. Uh, we believe that if you are feeding from us, you probably should sow something back into it. So we do appreciate that, but it's without charge to you, so you can go do that. We also encourage you, if you're being blessed by something that I've shared, to share the video on your Facebook page or with your friends, and it really helps us to build an audience to uh, be able to get the gospel out. Now, I'm going to begin today by with a story before I go into the I Am, because this sets the stage for it. I'm going to go back to the gospel of St. Luke in verse number 25 through tw uh, 37 is a story that sets me up to be able to really share what I have on my heart about I Am the Doer. Uh, verse number 25 of Luke 10, 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up tempting and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Now before I get down into uh, the latter part of this, let me just kind of work this a little bit. This is a lawyer that comes to Jesus. He's a lawyer of the Mosaic system or the law of Moses. So he knows all the legal ins and outs of the law. Now, what I want you to understand is, and this is to me such a vital, vital piece of information for every believer, for everyone, period. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the New Testament, but they are still in the Old Covenant. What do you mean? Because the New Covenant was inaugurated by the blood, and without blood, there is no remission of sin, and, and, and the blood of the covenant was shed by Jesus on Calvary's cross. Now, He's introducing the kingdom. He's introducing the new covenant. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think will help us a whole lot in our misunderstandings is that when we understand that the old covenant is primarily written to uh, a Hebrew audience. It's written to the Hebrews. It was God exclusively a covenant with them, especially from the Mosaic covenant on. It was given to uh, the Hebrews. Now, there are hints of the new covenant. There are types and shadows and pictures. Anybody that's ever watched us any length of time knows that we use the Old Covenant to reveal things in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, it is literally Jesus concealed, and in the New Covenant, it is Jesus revealed. So there are types and shadows and pictures, like, for instance, the Lamb that was slain. Those are pictures uh, that were happened in the natural to show us the spiritual truth in the New Covenant. I'm thankful that we don't have to, to, to sacrifice a bunch of lambs for the redemption of our salvation any longer. I'm thankful for that. But what I want you to see is that this lawyer stood up. First of all, he's really not looking for answers. He's tempting Jesus, and he's asking him, Master, what shall I do to inherit, that's the key word, inherit eternal life? Now, let me just say this to you, because this to me has been a concept that really has helped me understand 
a lot of things that Jesus was talking about. And I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by saying this. I believe that eternal life includes going to heaven when you die. That's settled. I, I, I'm not going to bring anything that would oppose that. I do believe that eternal life was being offered uh, to, uh, you know, the, for the first time, eternal life is being talked about in these scriptures. Now, eternal life, again, includes going to heaven when you die. But if you read this in Young's literal translation, or you read it in Weymouth, he will talk about what shall I do to inherit, the word eternal here is aeonian, or age-lasting, or age-enduring, or uh, of the ages. And it literally, he's talking in, in the mind of a first century Jew. He's not just thinking about going to heaven. He's thinking about the age that was upon them that was about to dawn, because they were at the close of the old covenant age and the dawning of the new covenant age, and he's asking him what he must do to inherit the life of the coming age. Now Jesus defines for us what is life eternal or the life of the coming age, and once again that includes going to heaven. But he defines, he said, this is life eternal, that you would know the Father. So the, the life of the coming age was a life lived out of relationship with Abba, where we know God is Father, and we live life in the context of sonship. Now that to us is not a revolutionary concept, but to a first century Jew, when Jesus even mentioned, he said, uh, he said, I and my Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him, and they were going to stone him, and they said, because thou being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus was identifying with God as not just this austere old man on a Victorian chair with a club in his hand, ready to slap you upside the head. It was, uh, it was, it was uh, him introducing us to God as a Father. The Apostle John writes in one of his uh, epistles, and he says, little children, well, no, no, he, says, he says this to us. He says, um, uh, he, he writes to us concerning fathers, but he says, behold what incredible quality of love the Father has bestowed on us that we might be called the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So he's talking to us about living life in the context of sonship, in a life free from the bondage and tyranny of the law of Moses, and under a whole completely new covenant. Oh, I wish we could grasp this. Because most of my life, even my young life, and, and most of the time as I'm traveling, what I see is a great deal of mixture of two covenants. And, and, and when you take things out of the context of the covenant they're in, it can become very, very, very dangerous. And, you know, some of the wars, uh, some of the atrocities of wars that we've seen throughout history has been because world leaders took scriptures out of context and applied them to things that had nothing to do with them. Uh, you know, sometimes we take, we, we, we cherry pick the scriptures that we're interested in, and then we don't really realize, listen, that's the wrong covenant. But when we realize that the new covenant was the, uh, was the life that they were headed for, now the first thing I want you to understand is that 
uh, the word, the key word here is he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, you don't do anything to inherit. You don't earn it. You don't, it's not a wage. It's something that someone gives you by virtue of an inheritance. And so he died so we could receive this life and literally receive his life. And so this, this, this lawyer is asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Of course, when, he, when, when they are asking Jesus, under the old covenant, what must I do? Under that old covenant, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, again, still see or still in that old covenant. He's going to tell them, here's what you need to do. Except in every case where he tells them what you have to do, they are always looking for a legal loophole, or they are always coming to the place where they said, yet thou lackest one thing. Because one of the things the Scripture said is that you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but they are they which testify of me. So, and he said, if there was a commandment that could have given life, then verily righteousness would have been by the law. Uh, that's why Jesus talked about in John 1, or uh, John talks about in Him was life, and the life was the light. In other words, you thought that was the light, and it wasn't the light. That was not the light. The life becomes the light, and that life that is the light is that life that we live out of a relationship with the Father and the Son. That's the life that He came to give us, and that's an abundant life. It's a life lived under the government of Holy Spirit. And so, when he asked him what I must do, he's telling him, well, here's what you got to do. You know the law. Tell me what the law says. Now, one of the things that they don't really realize is that the law could not produce, of course, life. Now, what Jesus does in the later places, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, let me just say this to you, because I think that it kind of goes along hand in hand a little bit with what I said maybe last week, even with about um, uh, I am the light. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. But when he's asking him, what must I do to inherit the life of the coming age, or eternal life? He says, how do you read, what, what's written in the law? How read it down? He answered, saying, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But Jesus answering said, uh, uh, no, but I'm sorry, verse number 29 said, but he willing to justify himself. Now that's what the law always does. As he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now let me just stop for a moment here again, because uh, what happens is, is that this lawyer is standing here trying to defend himself, that somehow... Uh, he has kept all the rules. And so under the Old Covenant, uh, your neighbor was your Jewish neighbor or your someone from the 12 tribes. But this story is going to go on to talk about a Samaritan. And so what he is really talking about here is real love that fulfills this is when you love people who are not part of your easy-to-love group, so to speak, but people you didn't think God cared about. And they, for especially Samaritans, were to them like a mongrel breed, and they would really, uh, they were uh, uh, rejected and hated by the Jewish nation. But Jesus is talking about, and you know, one of the things that really grabs my spirit, my heart, is when I see him talking about this, this is the kind of stuff 
loving your neighbor and loving people who don't look like you or act like you or are not from your people group is stuff that can literally change the world. Because when we start to love our neighbor as we, in other words, when we start to reach out beyond the paradigm of what we're comfortable with, that's what you see Jesus doing constantly. Is He's the friend of sinners and publicans. You see Him stop and heal the daughter of a Gentile woman, a Samaritan woman. You hear see Him heal a Seraphonician. You see Him touching or sending the word uh, to the servant of the centurion soldier who was not Jewish. He was Italian. And uh, God would send that uh, miraculous power to work a miracle in the lives of those people. And He was literally showing them many times, as you see the things that happened throughout the Scriptures, is that uh, you see Him literally crossing the lines of what their religious paradigms were used to, and He's touching people uh, that you wouldn't think He would touch, because love has the power to transform and to change people's lives. I think so many times, you know, it's easy for us to love our fellow Christians, but it's hard sometimes for us to love people from other religious backgrounds or people who don't live as holy of a life as we think they should. But see, love reaches out and grabs somebody because it's really the love of God that changes and has the power to transform our lives. And you know, one of the things he says even concerning this is, you know, I was thinking, I put in my notes from just a few weeks ago when I was teaching on this, I think it is in in Matthew 5, I believe verse 23, it says, If you bring your gift to the altar, and remember there that you have ought against your brother, you need to leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. And so one of the things that I begin to see is that Jesus was equating this. He's saying, listen, it's, you all, you, you all, it's easy for you to have this, uh, uh, this vertical relationship with God where you come to the temple and you offer your gift on the altar, and your, 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 your worship is, is vertical, so to speak. It is easy for us to sit in churches every week and light candles or take our communion. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with horizontal worship. I'm just saying that what Jesus was saying here, see, we go through a lot of religious motions in church where we have vertical worship. But what Jesus was saying here, if you bring your gift to the altar and you're about to offer something to God, and you remember that you have all against your brother. What he's saying is, listen, your horizontal relationships and how you treat humanity and how you treat your brother and how you treat the Samaritan is as much a part of your worship and is just as important as your gift you brought to the altar. In other words, your horizontal relationships are as important as your vertical relationship. And I'm reminded of the words of Jesus who said, how can you say you love God, not J J J Jesus, but John said that, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen, and yet you don't love your brother whom you have seen? Jesus was open in a real can of worms here because he was, he was really stretching them uh, to think outside their people group and to think outside of what was their, their norm. I was thinking... You know, my son Jeremy was with me uh, uh, a few weeks ago. We were in Florence, South Carolina doing a conference. Actually, my, my son was with me and several of my siblings, and it was, uh, it was all of my family doing this conference. 
And, and my son Jeremy, uh, he's been teaching on the Holy Spirit at his church. And uh, he was talking about the historic outpouring of Azusa Street. And he, he, he made a tremendous, I believe, uh, observation. Charles Parham, William Seymour, and a woman got together. And in the beginning of that outpouring, it was a black man, a white man, and a woman. All part of stuff that was at that time not the norm of society because at that time women didn't have a right to vote. Blacks and whites did not associate. But when blacks and whites and women got together, what happened was, is it resembled what God thinks heaven ought to look like, and that is all people groups loving one another without any racial tension or any kind of racial separation or without any kind of... of, uh, e- even gender prejudice, because here we've got a woman, a black man, and a white man, and when they got together, it resembled how heaven ought to be, and that's people in unity, and it was in that environment that God poured out the Holy Ghost, and the kingdom of God manifests any time that you get together, and it starts to resemble what's happening in heaven, when it looks like what's happening in the culture of heaven. If it's not heaven's culture, it shouldn't be our culture. See, I believe the influence of the kingdom will change our culture. And uh, that, that, that move of God ab- absolutely began to deteriorate when they started to separate again, and they built the white church and the black church, and you know, uh, I won't go into the denominational segregation that took place, but I believe God is interested in us being much more broad-minded than just our people group and even our style of worship. See, we think sometimes our style of worship is the only kind that can be accepted, and there's so many more people that I believe are accepted in the Beloved. And what, what this, what this uh, uh, lawyer is saying is, well, who is my neighbor? Well, the end of this story, and I'm, I guess I'm not going to get, uh, this, this is still going to set me up for uh, the I am the door part, uh, but when, when, what happens is, is that in this story, uh, there, is a, uh, there is a man who's left bleeding and dying by the Jericho Road, and this Samaritan comes, and he pours in oil, and he pours in wine, and uh, he heals this man, or gives him whatever cost to make him better. Now, the Samaritan, again, in this story, to me, speaks of someone whom they would not have loved. And the whole question is, who is my neighbor. And the answer to that question in this story is, Jesus said, who then was neighbor to him, the one who poured in the oil and the wine, or the priest, or the Levite? Which now of these three, verse 36, uh, uh, thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. So what we see here then is that uh, he said, the whole question is, who is my neighbor? Now, the fact of it is, is it was the Samaritan that was his neighbor. People who they didn't think they were supposed to love. I'm convinced that what made the early church irresistible was not their message, it was not their rules, it was the commandment Jesus had left with them that says, love one another even as I have loved you. And so, It was love that became the irresistible message that caused the multitudes to begin to be brought into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, even in the early churches, you see 
you see them having uh, disputes. For instance, you know, when Paul and them, uh, they were having a dispute over the Gentiles were coming in, and it was a new paradigm for them. They literally did not know what to do. I mean, Peter goes down to the house of Cornelius and preaches at the house of Cornelius, and the house of Cornelius get filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Peter goes back up uh, to the, the brothers at Jerusalem, I mean, he's almost having to defend the fact that these Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. And Pete says, listen, guys, all I can tell you is I went and preached the same gospel that I preached to the Jews, and while I was preaching the gospel, the Holy Ghost fell on them, and I can't deny them that that's what happened. In other words, I didn't give them the Holy Ghost. God gave them the Holy Ghost, and he bore witness to that he was including them. Then you see, I think it's probably almost 20 years into the New uh, Covenant, I believe in Acts 15, where they had the really big Jerusalem uh, powwow over the inclusion of the Gentiles. When all of these Gentiles are coming in and uh, they're disputing whether they should be circumcised or not circumcised, and the Jews are wanting to kind of bring them into what they think brings them, you know, so there are disputes over several things here, but uh, in the midst of this whole uh, uh, stretching of these first apostles are having to work their way through this, and I think it was Peter stood up and he said, to disagree the words of the prophets, I'll return again and build the tabernacle of David, which, uh, you know, that the residue of men may seek after the Lord. In other words, the tabernacle of David was open to all peoples of all people group, and so God was including them. They leave that Jerusalem powwow with only these recommendations, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and to things strangled, and to abstain from sexual immorality. And so I think as you look at that, even what Paul is writing these to, is what they're, they're sending these letters to the Gentile churches. And the reason they're sending this message to the Gentile churches is that the backdrop of the history of that is, is that the Jews and the Gentiles had begun to eat together, which was totally unheard of and uncommon in that particular day. They just did not eat with what they called dogs and, and, and uh, sinners. But now God was merging both Jew and Gentile together, and so I think what Paul was saying to them is, listen, to the Gentile churches, abstain from meats offered to idols, because these Jewish folks are used to kosher meats and, and certain ways of doing this, and we don't want to be an offense to them as we're coming together in our worship, because it might offend their weak conscience. Now later they began to realize that meat that was offered to idols was not an idol at all, but nevertheless what Paul was dealing with was, remember to be sensitive to people who are not maybe as far along as you are in the offense of what that would bring to them. So in other words, we don't want to destroy our fellowship because if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. But what I want you to see is that what was happening here is that inheriting the life of the coming age uh, it was not so much just about keeping of, of rules of the law of Moses. It was about walking in love towards one another and towards people groups that were not just like you. Well, we didn't get to the door yet, but this is the same chapter I'm going to deal with. So tune in again next week, if you would, as we continue to unpack this. I think you're going to be blessed. Uh, if you'd like to sow a seed into the ministry, we do need your help. Let me just say that emphatically. Even though you don't see us spend a lot of time raising money, it takes finances to do what we're doing with television, all we're doing with travel. So if you'd like to sow a seed into the ministry, call that number on the screen, or the easiest way is to go to our website, and there's a place where you can give via credit card, 
debit card through PayPal, and it will take your Visa or your MasterCard or any of your or credit cards. So it's you, or you can send a check or money order to the address that will come up on the screen. Your help is greatly needed and appreciated. It will it will help us bless the nations of the earth. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. The word repentance means to change your mind. The message of John the Baptist and of Jesus was to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is accessed by a change in our thinking. If you are in outer darkness, there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That reality is not always out in the distant future. It is in people's lives right now. One simple mind shift can move you out of darkness and weeping and into light and rejoicing. God wants to wipe all tears from our eyes and replace our weeping with joy.